Hey, this is Brent Jensen. You're listening to No Sleep Till Subway, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And sitting across from me right now is Barry Davis, a Canadian sportscaster formerly of Sportsnet and currently the host of the Out of the Park podcast. Barry began his broadcasting career in 1992, and in 2002, he became a reporter for the Toronto Maple Leafs at Sportsnet. Now, Barry, welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. Good to be here, Brent. Good to have you. Uh, you are also, in addition to being a broadcaster, a massive music fan, I know. Oh, I would say that music's probably a bigger passion for me than sports. I started becoming a sports fan maybe when I was three. Yeah. And I was into music in the womb, I would say. <laughs> both my parents were both in the music business. Uh, my dad was uh, one of those 50s and 60s lounge acts that did a little bit of everything, you know, yeah. singing, telling jokes, emceeing. Uh, my mom was part of a big dance troupe, and that's how they met. That's they, awesome. They toured a lot together. So music was, it was in my DNA. Yeah. And, you know, I, I still can recall some of the the first songs I ever heard in my life, and I can still envision little 45 spinning around on the record player as, as a real infant. So, yeah, music has always been there for me. Yeah, yeah, for me too. Practically since I was... And so it was born, music was always there, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I grew up in a small town just outside Sudbury, and music was like an absent friend because there's nothing going on up there. So, same. And it never lets you down, right? Exactly. Like, like people can let you down, they can upset you, but you can always go to your favorite music and it will make you feel better. It was always there for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Now, I know that you are the uh, singer and guitarist in Tom Petty tribute band. It's called We Ain't Petty. Is that right? Yes, sir. Yeah. So you guys play around the GTA. We do. And, uh, you know, looking to head out Sudbury way too at some point. <laughs> we, we just want to get out there and start playing. Um, we started this about, oh, probably about two years ago. Yeah. We had it going. And it, I was in a band through my teen years. And then around the age of 21, I uh, had to get a real job which really wasn't a real job because I ended up working, you know, in radio and TV. Yeah. But I needed to have a job where I knew I was going to get a paycheck every two weeks. And music, performing music became, it went to being a side thing, and mm-hmm. then it became a, a no thing. And then, you know, you get married and you had a kid. And uh, other than playing guitar for my son and getting him involved in music, I really didn't have time to perform. Yeah. And then something happens when you get into your mid to late 40s and you start having midlife crisis and you start to think about <laughs> what I want to do. And I just, I, I watched the Tom Petty documentary on Netflix and I yeah. was always a huge, huge Tom Petty fan. When I saw that documentary, I said, you know what? I want to go up and play some of that music. And my first thought was just jam it. Yeah. So I just sent out a message on Facebook and I said, I'm going to put together a Tom Petty band. Anybody interested in jamming? And the first response i got was from a guy that was my guitarist back in the mid 80s oh. and he plays in a number of different bands but he said i'd love to do that i'm a big tom petty fan mm-hmm. so he was in right away and i had a, a couple of other people respond but it's so hard to get five adults together on a consistent basis to yes. rehearse yeah. so uh, my guitarist has been with me from the beginning and we went through a number of different people but now we've we've settled on on a five-piece band uh, the drummer I have now was actually my son's drum teacher when he was a kid, and he's now uh, my co-host and producer of my podcast. So he's a big part of, of, of what, what I'm doing right now. Yeah. And then I got the bass player through him and then the keyboard player through a mutual friend, and, and off we went. And, you know, here we are two years later, and we're just we're just loving it. Two years later. Yeah. 
That's great. I, I played in a couple bands myself, and I know how hard it is even to get together, you know, once every three weeks yeah. to organize that, right? Uh, the nice thing is once you've once you've got everything down, you don't have to rehearse as often. Yeah, true. And we're now in, in a little phase because our bass player's wife just had a baby, so he's had to take a bit of time away. Mm-hmm. And now we're getting back into gigging at the end of November, so, hey, we haven't rehearsed in about a month. Let's get together and have a couple of rehearsals. Yeah. But other than that, you know, we can just do it periodically but yeah at the beginning when you're trying to get 40 50 songs down oh man it's hard <laughs> to, to get everybody together in the same room for sure so what uh, what kind of tunes do you do from the petty catalog we do we do pretty much everything i mean i've seen a lot of tribute bands out there that will play some of the hits but then they're only playing stuff for the hardcore fans and i'll go to shows and i'm like i don't know any of these songs yeah. so we wanted to make sure that we gave the fringe fans reason to come out and see because there are enough hit songs from Tom Petty that you'll go, oh, I didn't know that was Tom Petty. Oh, I didn't know that was Tom Petty. For sure. So we make sure that every hit song that he has is something that we do. Good. And then we, you know, if we're playing a show where we have three sets, we'll fill the first two sets with all the biggest hits. And then the third set, we'll, you know, throw in still some more hits because he has so many. But that's when we'll throw in a few of the album tracks as well. Uh, I like that. Yeah. And we try to keep it so that. The album tracks we do are things that get people moving because by the third set, people have had a lot to drink. They want to get up and they want to dance. They want to have some fun. So that's where we, you know, if we're going to throw in an obscure track, we're going to make sure it's something that they they can get up and dance to and have some fun to. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So when's your next gig? November 30th, we have a show uh, at a place called The Duke, which is in downtown Toronto on Queen and Leslie. Oh, so you play downtown too. Yeah, most of our shows are in the downtown area. We've we play. Uh, we played a few times uh, on the Danforth. We uh, there's a place in Etobicoke. We played a few times Brampton, Mississauga, all over that area. And then in the summertime, all the festivals come out. So we, we did a bunch of those this past summer. A lot okay. of the food truck shows. Awesome. That's great. Man. Mm. I have to check you guys out. November thirtieth. Mark it down. November thirtieth. With that new calendar, listeners. Yes. Tom Petty. We ain't petty. We just look that way. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, it was one of those things where we tried to come up with a name, and everybody usually goes with the name of an album, Yeah. and every time I thought of it, oh, that's been taken, that's been taken, and it was right around that time that uh, Tom Petty's management was suing somebody for for taking part of his song and making it one of theirs. Oh, really? And I forget what the song was. He was just, you know, this pop artist, and... I knew it didn't come from Tom himself. Right. Because I remember saying, making a joke, well, Tom isn't that petty. <laughs> and then I went, oh, yeah, you know, and then I came up with, we ain't petty because it's, you know, a double meaning, right? Yeah. Uh, meaning that, you know, that's not who, I mean, we're, we're not Tom Petty. We can't be. Nobody can be Tom Petty, but we're going to try to be, you know, the best we can be. Perfect. That's great. All right, man, let's get into your tunes here. you got some good ones. So the first one is from Rubber Soul by The Beatles. It's In My Life. Could have been any song on that album, really. That That is, to me, the Beatles album of all Beatles albums. I mean, the Beatles have always been number one for me growing up. To me, the Rubber Soul Revolver was really where that band went from being, you know, a pop band to becoming an experimental psychedelic band. The songwriting on those two albums was phenomenal. But In My Life always resonated for me. I mean, I've got it tattooed on my arm. Oh, wow. There it is. Right? That's uh, John Lennon's lyrics always got me. His voice always got me. But for me, uh, In My Life, 
the story of that song, the simple melody of that song, uh, and everything they were able to do in studio. Even Ringo's drum sound is, is really spectacular in that song. But I could just sit, put the headphones on and melt to that song. Yeah, yeah. There's so many of those, though, in the Beatles catalog, right? Yeah. So many. Yeah, that's a great one. Uh, Segway, John Lennon, Beautiful Boy. This is great. This is for Sean Lennon. Yeah, and to me, one of my favorite lyric quotes from John Lennon of all time is, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. (laughs) And that's a lyric from that song. And it's a song that, you know, most of us didn't hear for the first time until after he passed away. Mm Mm-hmm. And you listen to that entire album, at least the songs that John wrote on Double Fantasy, because, of course, that album was half of Yoko's stuff as well. Yeah. But the songs that John wrote on that final album, and really it wasn't his final album because he was in the studio making the album that would become Milk and Honey. But when he was making that album, it was a lot of reflecting. It was a lot of you know starting over. It was a lot of looking at his life and saying, you know, I was, I was a badass kid. I was a terrible father, I was a bad husband, I did a lot of bad things, but I'm 40 now, and now I'm ready to be a devoted husband, a great father, we're starting over, and as the father of a son as well, uh, that song to me means a lot because, you know, you, you want to be there, and you want, you imagine when your child is young, what are they going to be like when they're an adult, what are they going to look like, how are they going to be, yeah. and before you know it, it happens, right? Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, that's uh, just an amazing song. And I know that around the time that he wrote that song, uh, John had spent a lot of time in the Caribbean, and he was really fascinated with the steel drums. So you hear a lot Ah. of the steel drums in the background in that song, too. Mm, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Apparently, this was one of uh, Paul McCartney's favorites. I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. And, you know, to this day, and here we are, you know, 30-some-odd, 38 years going to be in December. Yeah that uh, it's still, when I put that album on and certain songs, they're, they're just so sad. Yeah. Because you saw, I mean, as a kid, I mean, I was, you know, 1980, I was 12 years old when that happened. You thought of John Lennon as being old then, yes. right? Because it wasn't, you know, the mop top Beatle John, it was John Lennon, the adult. That's right. But now I think, oh, he was only 40. Yeah. He was only 40. How much more... Could he have done? He would just taken five years off to spend time with his family, and this was his big comeback. Yeah. And the amount of songs that he probably had in his head, or that he had started to write down, that we never had a chance to to hear. Yeah, uh, it makes uh, that last album that much more special. Yeah, he had so much unreleased stuff just because he was uh, he, he was a perfectionist, but also mm-hmm. he, he was. Um, he didn't necessarily believe in the in the quality of his voice. You know, he, no, he hated it. You know, as a Beatles fan, you would know this that he would put um, like milk bottles and stuff on microphones to, to change the intonation of his vocal because mm-hmm. he, he thought he sounded very nasally. When he sang uh, "Come Together," he literally was lying down on his back in the studio and had mm-hmm. the mic over top of him, yeah. and he was always asking their producer George Mark, "Can you do an effect and do something here?" And George Mark would always say, "John, you have the most beautiful voice in right. the world." Why do you want to change? But I think a lot of people are like that. They're very self-deprecating, and, and John was like that. But yeah, I, I, I know that a lot of that music, unreleased music, has come out in different bootlegs. And, and even the two songs that the Surviving Beatles got together and, and played uh, in, I think it was 1995, when they did their uh, you know, the big box set, yeah, which was kind of cool. 
but uh, I'd love to hear some of the stuff that's still out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah, and it'll probably see the light of day at some point, right? Oh, yeah. I would imagine. Okay, next tune, Tom Petty, speaking of which, you and I will meet again. Yeah, one of those ones that you go, what? Hey, most people go, I've never heard that song before. And I could have picked so many of them, but I, I play so many of these songs now. They're so embedded in my brain that I can't listen to them, and it's kind of sad. I can't sit back and listen to them the way I used to now. Right. We don't play this particular song now. It's a song I want to add, but it's something, again, that would be one of those third set songs. Mm -hmm. And this was a song that I always thought was kind of a cool song, and if, if you have the uh, album Into the Great Wide Open... It's on there. It's very much uh, a Jeff Lynn type of project, and you can tell by the sounds on it. A lot of uh, you know layered guitars and 12-string on there. But it wasn't until after Tom passed away that the lyrics of that song hit me. And I think someone had posted it online, the YouTube, and it was just a lyric video. And when I listened to the lyrics, you know, you and I will meet again. You know, it was you know you know when we least expected. I always thought of. Tom, after he died, and I wrote a, a blog about this on my website about how Tom Petty was was the great friend I'd ever met. Yeah. Because even though I've never met the man, I feel like I know him because of of his music and because of you know all the interviews and everything I've read about him. And it's one of those things where you know if there's something after this crazy world, you know maybe maybe I'll have that chance and you know you'll you'll meet him and. I just found that to just uh, be a very prophetic lyric of his that's, that really works now. And, and it kind of gives me, the, as you said, the chills when I hear that song. Mm -hmm. Isn't that uh, interesting that, you know, you don't know Tom Petty, but you kind of feel like you know him through his music. It's and, crazy, isn't it? And interviews. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of people, it's funny that you say that, Barry, because a lot of people have been on the show and they feel the same way. I was talking to a woman. She told me that she cried when Tom Petty died because she felt like she lost a friend. Yeah. And she'd never met him before. She was just a fan. But I think he was that kind of guy that put himself out there and what you saw and heard was what you really got. Mm -hmm. He was just a very earnest, honest individual. I mean, and Tom was still alive when we started doing this tribute. So, I mean, this was a guy that I've spent a lot of time trying to sound like and, and learning everything about the way he moved on stage, the way he... You know, in certain intonations and the way he sang lyrics, how he played his guitar, all these things. And in fact, I was in my basement with my Rickenbacker playing a Tom Petty song and doing the voice when my phone lit up. And it was a text from one of my friends just saying, did you hear Tom Petty just died? No way. And that was a real surreal moment because, you know, as I am, you know, channeling my inner Tom Petty at that moment. Right. Wow. You get the message. Yeah, it was uh, it was very, very bizarre to what see that. What was that like? How did you feel when you it read was, that? It just creeped me out, for, for starters. I mean, I just stopped what I was doing, and I, I you know, thought, there's there's no way this is BS, right? Yeah. I mean, I, we just saw him in concert in Toronto about a month or so ago. He's doing his tour. This couldn't really be happening, right? Right. So it really took, a, it took, took some time to sink in. But like I said, just to know what I was doing at the time of finding out. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Okay, next up here, you've got uh, Van Halen and Dreams. Are you a, I'll ask you before you get into this, are you a Roth guy or a Hager guy? Um, it all depends. Okay. Because growing up, I was a Roth guy because there, Hager wasn't in the band. Yeah. I love Van Halen right from the beginning. I love how raw they were. I love that Ted Templeman would put him in the studio and say, just play, boys. 
We're not going to have a click track. We're not going to have a lot of overdubs. Just play. And they came out at a time when a lot of people were saying rock and roll is done, right? Disco is in and it's it's all the rage and rock is is not. They came out and said, you know, screw that. We're going to start rocking. So I really love that. And when I heard David Lee Roth was leaving the band, I thought, oh, well, good luck. They're never going to. And I was very skeptical. Like, I, And I remember listening. I remember it was in high school and I was sitting in front of the radio. And I remember them saying, we're going to play the brand new Van Halen song at six o'clock. Yeah. And I remember sitting down the radio. I'm like, OK, let's hear what this sounds like. And the very beginning of uh, uh, Why Can't This Be Love yeah. starts. Yeah. And it doesn't start in a typical Van Halen fashion. And you're listening to it what in the world is this? Yeah. But eventually, Sammy got me. And I realized that Sammy brought to the band something that David didn't bring, and that was good singing. Right. Sammy was a terrific, terrific singer. David was a terrific front man. Yes. So there was, to me, it became two different bands. There was always the fight. Well, you're Sammy guy, you're Dave guy. And for me, it was like, I like both Van Halen's, just like I like both ACDCs, mm-hmm. different bands. But for me, the 5150 album, maybe it's because of the age I was at when it came out. You know, I was in my mid-teens. And to hear the passion in Sammy's voice in the song, Dreams, Eddie's keyboard playing, the, the acoustic guitar in there, it was it was a different, totally different sound for Van Halen. But to this day, if, if I was to put on one Van Halen song, that would probably be the one I'd, I'd put on to listen to. Really? Yeah. Roth era uh, considered as well. Yeah, if it was a Roth song, it would probably be Little Guitars. Oh, really? Yeah. Sound like that. Yeah, that's, that's that's probably my favorite uh, uh, Van Halen song with David Lee Roth. Why is that? It's a good question. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of it could be just, just when it came out, you know, the Diver Down album was, was a different one because it had so many cover songs on it. Yeah. And that was one of the few originals that they had on it. And I always liked the... I like the guitar playing in it that Eddie had, and it was just a catchy chorus. Uh, yeah. Between that one and Dance the Night Away from their second album, and maybe I just, I, I was the kind of guy that went for the hooks, right? I yeah. just like the hooks in the songs. Yeah. I think both of those songs had really, really neat hooks in them. Yeah. Not a lot of records. Five with, uh, well, six with, with Roth, but so many. I can't think of the song, you know, maybe there's two or three in a whole bunch of them, but like a song I don't like right. in Roth or Van Halen. They're all so great. Every record was awesome. Oh, yeah. down was... I mean, you think about their debut album. Yeah. How many bands can say that they have a debut album like that? Yeah. You know, exactly. you put the needle down and there's Running With The Devil. And then you had Eruption. And then, yeah, you really got me. Uh, you know, Jamie's Crying. It's just like one after the other after the yeah. other. Like, that's just a, like a total kick-ass first album. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Van Halen is one of my all-time oh, favorite cool. bands. I love it. And, and there's they're such a great story. I mean, one of my favorite... Uh, biographies to read is is you know the Van Halen ones and how they used to they, that they'd be playing house parties all the time yeah and they bring huge amps and big sets backyards and, yeah backyards man yeah yeah in Pasadena totally right and they never imagined no. that they would be you know a household thing have you read Sammy Hagar's book right no I haven't gotten to that that's one, one you that's a, that is that is a big read you should that's that's one to check out yeah because there's some pretty interesting stories in there. I read, uh, is it Joel Monk, uh, the, the manager? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe not Joel Neal, whatever, whatever his name is. But that's, a, that's a good mm-hmm. one, too. Yeah, yeah. Huge fan of Hamilton. 
I'll check out Hagar's book for sure. Because I liked him. He seemed like a very affable guy. Oh, he's, you know, spent half his life in Hawaii, right? It's, yeah. He's, a, he's chill. He's just, exactly, he's chill. Yeah. Yeah, he seems like a nice person. Though, I know he know? wants really badly to mend the ties, right? I remember him saying recently, you know what, life's too short. I'm getting too old for this. I'd love nothing more than to, to get back with the guys. And if, you know what, if they want to have David there too, and so be it. Yeah. But there really was that split where Sammy and Michael Anthony went this way, Eddie and Alex went that way, and then, you know, they brought David back because David will do really anything, <laughs> anything oh. to be in the spotlight and make some money, right? Of course, yeah. I could never really figure out the animosity for that, that, that Eddie had for Michael Anthony. Yeah, well, Eddie seemed to be a real narcissistic kind of guy. Yeah. And he had a lot of issues, and I think a lot of people that have worked with him have always said that, you know, he's, he's brilliant. He can be the sweetest guy in the world, but he can also be the biggest prick in the world. So yeah, yeah. It, it can happen. Yeah. Sometimes the, the most brilliant people are the most difficult ones to be around. Well, that happens often. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Your next tune is Green Day, When September Ends. Green Day is a band that I, when they first came out, I didn't really know much about them because... When, when the, the 90s came, I was still living in the 80s. Yeah. And I had a friend that said, you know, you got to listen to this. You got to listen to this. These guys are great. You know, all little two-minute songs and stuff like that. And the first few albums of Green Day, I just looked at it as just kind of fun, yeah, punky, poppy music. But then when American Idiot came out, what I loved about that album was it was the first time in many years that I could listen to an album. Because by the time the 2000s rolled along, and we're seeing it today, it's not about albums anymore. It's about singles. Right. You know, a band writes a single, they record it, they put it out on iTunes, and then once they've got 12 of those, then they'll say, okay, here's our album. Mm-hmm. Whereas back in the 60s and 70s, bands went into the studio and made an album. It had a beginning, it had an end, it had side one, it had side two. Yes. So when American Idiot came out, I love the fact that it was a throwback to, to a real album. And again, this was one of those ones where I could have picked a number of different songs, but I think that the story behind When September Ends and, you know, him talking about the relationship with his father and what he wished he had had and, you know, his father's gone now. And I, and I had the same thing. I was 20 when I lost my dad. So, mm-hmm. you know, I always look back and say, you know, you know, what kind of relationship could I have? What could I have done differently? And, you know, if, if, if he had kept living and how our lives would have been different. So, um I, I'm big into the reflecting songs, and especially the ones that involve family. Yeah, yeah. And um, the drums in that song, like when they come in, are just so big. Definitely. Okay, next up, man, David Bowie, Ashes to Ashes. This is a great tune. David Bowie, uh, we share the same birthday, so I always felt him oh. as a kindred spirit of oh. mine. And speaking of tattoos, yeah, there's the uh, oh, wow. uh, line from Ashes to Ashes. Uh, oh, I'm happy. Hope you're happy too. So for the so for the listeners, that's on uh, Barry's calf. Yeah. So wow. It's, it's the with uh, uh, Aladdin saying lightning bolt. Yeah. Well, which isn't you know, a tremendous album as well. That I would have. I'm going to tell you something. I would have never guessed watching on Sportsnet. I would have never guessed that you'd have. Well, when you get the suits tattoo. and everything right, you know, they, you block it all in, right? <laughs> so that's yeah, that's great. the one thing you, you never really get to know the real person behind that's what so you true, see. Isn't it? Yeah. So I always felt that kind of connection. You know, I shared the birthday with Bowie and Elvis. I wasn't okay with Elvis, but Bowie for some reason. And again, I think it connects with, with my love of, of John Lennon and the Beatles because you can totally see that that influence. In fact, they, they worked together in the Young Americans album and, and John produced it. And of course, fame, John was uh, was all over that. Yeah. But 
I think, other than hearing some David Bowie on the radio as a kid, it wasn't until Scary Monsters came out. I believe it was 1980, and again, I was 12, and that was when I was really... That was when music, I was going out to, to Sam the Record Man, buying like records every week. Yes. And that song came out, and at the time, I had no idea what it was about. Right? I didn't know what the lyrics were about. I was just a kid. But I just loved the sound of the song, you know, the, the really weird-sounding guitars in the background, and his voice was just so, so cool because you got different sides of Bowie's voice. You got the low, deep baritone, but then you got the, the higher voice. Yeah. and it, it, it just had everything. And then as time went on and I started reading the lyrics to the song and I got to know about David's story and realized that that, that song is all about, you know, having been strung out for so many years. Yeah. I mean, this, this was a guy that for an entire year, his diet consisted of milk and red peppers. That's, That's right. all he had. Yeah. Other than the drugs, of course. Yeah. And, you know, kind of ties back to, to uh, you know, Major Tom and, you know, yeah. to that story of Space Oddity. So that song to me is one that I've always, I always love listening to. If it, you know, comes on the radio, boom, I'll crank it up and listen to it again. Yeah. But uh, to me, one of the more underrated albums of David Bowie, because it was, again, in a, in a transition phase for him. And he went through so many transition, uh, transition phases. And that's the, the neat thing about Bowie. And the same with the Beatles is that you can take songs on certain albums that, and another album like how could this be the same band yeah and Bowie's done so many different things and then even his last album Black Star which was so jazzy and so out there yeah. that it's like where is he going you know he even did the uh, you know the bass and drum kind of you know heavy beat stuff that uh, that became so big in the 90s and became relevant again with a young crowd with the uh, I'm Afraid of Americans so that's right I always tell somebody, they're like, well, I don't know if I like David Bowie. I said, well, you know what? Listen to it all because I'm sure somewhere in there you'll find something that you'll like because so he does every style of music. He really does. Mm -hmm. You know, I was saying to somebody the other day that David Bowie was genius because he knew what we wanted before we knew that we wanted <laughs> it, right? So yeah. if you look at his career as a Bowie fan, I'm a huge Bowie fan too. Um, and, and he started as a folkie. Totally. Right? And went and through Even before and, that, it was, it was totally like the... Like I was talking about my dad being the lounge act. I yeah. mean, some of the stuff he did before he was signed was like, who is yeah. this guy? You know, he tried to be all fancy on stage and yeah, stuff. And sax player. Yeah. 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 Not a bad sax player either. Yeah. Davy Jones in the, I can't remember, Davy Jones in the lower fifth or something like that, whatever it was. But yeah, he was, he, he has been everything, you know, it just, I. He even knew the right time to to move into to the pop sound because the Let's mm -hmm. Dance album was was the perfect timing for that. And, uh, you know, he ends up working with Nile Rodgers yep. who really gave him a great sound. And, you know, it also was was the beginning of one of the greatest guitarists out there in Stevie Ray Vaughan who made right. his, his, his debut. In fact, Stevie was supposed to go out on tour with David and by that time, Dave's trying to get all straight. Stevie Ray Vaughan's so strung out. He said, I can't take you on tour with me. Yeah. Stevie ends up having a pretty good solo career yeah. before his untimely death. But yeah, I just, I just loved everything that David did. And even at times when people said, Oh, yeah, that's it. That's it for him. Yeah. Uh, he'd come back and, and there he was dying of cancer and writing his, his opus really. And that was his goodbye to yeah. his fans, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And that's the thing. You, you listen to those songs and I mean, you can dig as deep as you want, but you don't really have to, to go. He's saying I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody will ever achieve what David Bowie no. achieved ever again. No. Ever. Okay, last tune, my friend, the Eagles. Mm-hmm. Take it to the limit. Wow. I love the Eagles. Uh, again, I could have gone back to the very beginning. You know, kind of like the police, they didn't have a lot of albums. Mm-hmm. But they made such an impact on the albums they did. And as much as I love Don Henley's voice, and I think one of the most beautiful voices in rock and roll, there was just something about Randy Meisner singing that song. And I think after seeing the documentary and hearing the story about how he was afraid to sing it live. Yes. You know, he was just so afraid that he wasn't going to be able to hit those notes and it pissed the guys off. And like, just sing it. They came here, they paid the money, they want to hear Take It to the Limit. Do Take It to the Limit. And uh, the musician in me is always a sucker for things that are in different time signatures. And that being in, in the, you know, seven, eight time, you know, where it's six, eight time, it's just one of those cool kind of feels. Uh, the harmonies are terrific. Um, it was it was going to either be, because I knew I had to take an Eagle song, it was either going to be that one or one of these nights, which is funny because one of these nights is like a, it's a total disco song when you think about it, right? Yeah. Um, it could have been the Bee Gees singing back up. That's true, yeah. But uh, Don Felder's guitar solo in that song is so nice. Yeah, so ticked off that Don Felder had to had to take too much uh, ego into this, where he could have yeah, really he blew it. I yeah. mean, he could he could have still been playing with them. Instead, they just hired someone to, to play his stuff. Yeah, but Don wanted more, and you know, Henley and Fry were were kind of dictators in that band, but it was their band, right? Yeah. It yeah. was their they were the creators of it all. But you know, in the midst of that was was a really terrific song from Randy Meisner. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a great fact. My favorite Eagles tune, I think, is I Can't Tell You Why. Oh, Timothy there you go. Another bass player one, right? Yeah. And that was cool because Timothy, he was just in the band, joins the band just in time for them to break up, really, as they're, as they're putting the long run together. Yeah. And he just brought this little song, and Glenn Fry heard, he goes, you know what? You've got your hit, son. You've yeah. got your first hit. And cool? again, you talk about the guitar playing. Don Felder's guitar playing is so beautiful. Yeah. Very jazzy sounding guitar. Yeah, you're right. But yeah, uh, yeah, that was another one. Uh, I could have gone with old fifty five as well. Yeah, you know, just I, I some like that. That's one of those ones that again wasn't one of their bigger hits, but it could have been. It was just such a great song. Yeah, see, I like those. I like the deeper cuts. Mm-hmm. I'm a deeper cut guy. Yeah, no, this has been a, a great chat. This is a great list, man. I, I appreciate you coming in today. Thank oh, you. Oh, my pleasure. Much. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, you're welcome to come back anytime. Barry Davis, check out his podcast, Out of the Park, and uh, his tribute band, Tom Petty, We Ain't Petty. Love it. Thanks, man. That, bro. Thank you. All right. This has been No Sleep Till Sunday with Brent Jensen. Until next time, folks. Take good care. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Sudbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon Worldwide.